from Luke chapter 3, and it's from verses 15 to 22. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things, evil things he had done, Herod added this to them, or he locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And the second reading comes from Titus chapter 2, and it's from verses 1 to 10. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. They cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Well, good evening, SNC. It's so good to have you all here tonight. Uh, my name is Jimmy again. And uh, we're halfway through a series in the book of Titus, so a letter that Paul has written to a guy, an apostle, or one of his apostles uh, called Titus. And he's, he's instructed Titus to, to order the church for the good order of the whole church by appointing leaders so they can lead in such a way of the message of grace that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has its way of the people and allows the people to flourish. And so last week we looked at the important qualifications of a church leader and what church leaders should have as characteristics and how they should lead confronting uh, those who would oppose this message. And this week we kind of look at what happens when they're doing good at their job. In a sense, what happens uh, when the grace of God has its way with the people of God and how that affects our behavior and our character, and particularly as we seek to pursue godliness, as we seek to pursue to be like God and why that is good for us. And so with that in mind, let's pray again as we, as we um, come to this text. Father, we thank you so much we can read your word and we can have it preached, and we thank you, Lord, that you speak and you encourage us. And we ask now, Father, that you would... 
you would help us to see, not just with uh, our eyes, but with our hearts as well, what you're trying to teach us tonight. That as we look at this text, and as we uh, seek to, to know what you're trying to tell us about godliness, that we would take it to heart, and then we would seek to do business with you tonight, and we would see the benefit and the goodness of pursuing a life of godliness uh, because of what you've done for us in your son, the grace shown to us there. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we are now two weeks into the new year, and so I want to check in with you guys. How are you going with your New Year's resolution? Do you have a new, anyone have a New Year's resolution? Yes, one person, two people. Fantastic. Kay and I, Tim as well, fantastic. We, I have news resolutions all the time, every year, and Kay and I have got a couple this year as well. In particular, one of those New Year's resolutions is to eat less Deliveroo. We want to order less Deliveroo and therefore cook at home more so we can A, be healthier. Or well, me, that's, I'm, I'm the culprit here. Be healthier, but also save money as well. But it's really, really hard because delivery uh, is so convenient for one thing, and as well, there's so many options in Manly. And our favourite go-to option is pocket pizza in Manly. I don't know if you've had pocket pizza before, but it is the best pizza you'll ever have, uh, probably in Manly. Maybe there's better ones elsewhere, but it is just so good, and it's so hard to be self-controlled. You know, it's so hard to just, you know, I'd rather, it's so convenient, you can just pull out the app, order the pizza, and it comes to your door in 25 minutes, the best tasting pizza in the world. And it's that's so much easier than simply deciding to go down the coals, to buy food, to prep a meal, and so therefore, I'd rather that option. But we're trying our best and our hardest not to go for that option, to try and be self-controlled, but we're really struggling. We've already failed twice this week in our endeavor. So... Why do we do it? <laughs> Why do we bother with New Year's resolutions when they're so hard to keep, when the immediate desires before us are so tempting to us that we just seek to pursue those desires instead and we end up not fulfilling our New Year's resolutions. Well, the reason why I think we do do it is because we can see a better vision of ourselves, whether physically, emotionally, or financially, that we desire to come to reality. We know that at the pursuit of our immediate desires doesn't lead to the best version of ourselves that we can be. And so therefore, we want to have this self-control. We have this goal in mind so we can pursue what is truly good for us and best for us. And so for, for me and for Katie, uh, the immediate desire is to have pizza in the most convenient way possible. But I know it's better for me and for Katie if, if we forego that, have self-control, it's better for our wallet and it's better for our health as well. But here's the thing, self-control in our culture is not something that we value very highly at all, especially in a culture where freedom is of a virtue to us, unfettered freedom, the ability to do whatever I want, want whenever I want to. And so people, I guess our age, have a different type of value when it comes to freedom. We have a let loose type culture, not a self-control culture. We want to let loose, especially after high school. And so instead of being uh, self-controlled, we seek to indulge in the desires of our heart. We seek to do whatever we want that pleases us. If that means going out in the town and hooking up with people, we'll do that. If that means gorging ourselves on food, we'll do that. If that means binging on alcohol, we'll do that because these things are immediate desires and we're just letting loose 
not thinking about the consequences of these desires. And we'll do it until our heart is content or our body can no longer take it. In the past, this was called debauchery. And we can see, even as, we, as young people, how this pattern of life can become quite destructive when we're older. When people indulge in too much alcohol at Christmas time, perhaps, at family events, things can be said that probably shouldn't be said. Arguments can come up that should have been avoided, and it can tear families apart. Violence can even break out. People can lose their jobs. When you as a boyfriend or a girlfriend spend too long looking at other men and women in your life, that you indulge that desire to want to be with that person instead of your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, and you end up cheating on your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife because of the promise of this younger or this better person in your life that not only breaks down your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, but also breaks down the relationship between your friends as well, tied to that relationship. When we are so driven by our careers, by doing well at uni, uh, that we fail to rest and spend time with friends and family. This is destructive because it not only destroys those relationships, but it also means that we can have a breakdown in our mental health. We can become depressed and burned out as well. These are all the desires that we have that are immediate to us because they promise a version of a good life that, are, that we seem somehow to believe. But the irony of our culture's view of unfettered freedom is that in the end, it enslaves us. The value that we have to be free from power structures, from external authorities, from people saying that you should do this and live your life this way, the flip side of that, the extreme flip side of that, is actually enslavement again. Not to other people, and other authorities, but rather the authority of your desires. Where you can't help but go to the bottle. Where you can't help but look at pornography. Where you can't help but be so driven to make money that you forego relationships with other people. Where you can't help but be angry and jealous and bitter when something doesn't go your way and you lash out and justify it. We're enslaved our desires and our world is crying out for something better and they don't even realize it a freedom or a way that we can use our freedom that is ordered to what is good because our freedom ordered towards our desires doesn't seem to end well for us our desires seem to take us on a destructive path and in our passage this evening we have a picture of how the grace of God in Jesus Christ can properly order our desires to what is good, can properly order our desires to something far better, a life of godliness, a life that is good for us, and not just for us, but for the world as well. And if you're a Christian here this evening, it's my hope that you will desire a godly life, and not because the promise of a godly life means you become a better person, not because... Uh, it means that you can be more sure of your faith with God. Those are the lies of New Year's resolutions, actually. New Year's resolutions promise that if you can keep this, that therefore you become a better person. 
That's a lie. The reality is we can't. But the reason why I want you to pursue godliness is because of the grace of God over your life. That Jesus Christ has died for your sin. He has forgiven you. He has made a way for you to be right with God. And that wonderful message of grace, which we've been hampering on about these last few weeks, is what enables us, motivates us to pursue a life of godliness. That's my hope for you all tonight. In our passage, Paul begins by instructing Titus to, to teach according to sound doctrine. So the most important thing when it comes to pursuing godliness is what, is what we are being taught. And so back in chapter 1, we, we heard about, or Paul mentioned a whole bunch of people who are going to the churches in the in Crete, causing disruptions and causing disorder, saying things they shouldn't have said, leading people away from Jesus, and telling the churches around Crete that they should also do other things plus believe in Jesus. Things like they had to be circumcised, things like they had to follow old Jewish myths as well, uh, follow old Jewish food ritual laws as well. You can't eat this certain meat or that certain animal in particular. And so it was a Jesus plus thing. But here's the thing. They were doing that for the sake of being godly. They had the same motivation. But Paul is saying here, Titus, that that is a lie. That won't make you more godly. That won't help you to be more godly by doing all these extra things. Rather, what you need to teach is, that the, is the message of grace, which we hear about in verse 11, which is that Jesus Christ has appeared, that grace has appeared in Jesus Christ, which offers salvation to all who believe. And so we need to have that from the outset. It's the grace of God. It's what Christ has done for you that means that you can pursue godliness. The, the kind of life that God wants us to live properly orders our freedom to what is good. And it's all based on his grace and mercy. And so we have, I guess, an example of that, of what that looks like in the rest of the passage, in verses 2 to 10. Now we have a lot of detail in that passage. Things said about older women and younger women, things said about older men and younger men, uh, things said even about slaves as well. And all these things are said to particular groups about how each group can pursue godliness and as well as the whole as well. And though Paul does say a lot of particular things, tonight I just want to focus on the general principle that he has for all the groups. If you, want, if you have questions on the particular verses and what he means by some things there, um, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards at the DY Hotel over a beer or whatever it is and to talk to you about those things. But right now, tonight, I want to focus on what he has to say to all those groups when it comes to pursuing godliness and he says to each group that to pursue godliness they need to have self-control he says to older men in verse 2 to have self-control the older women are to teach the young women to have self-control in verse 5 the younger men ought to have self-control as shown by titus and even the slaves are not to talk back to their master when they so desire to implying they need to have self-control control. Self-control is the fruit that springs up from the message of grace that allows godliness to flourish. But as we noted earlier on, our world doesn't like the idea of self-control. 
we have desires and we want to let loose on them because we feel like to be me, to have my own freedom and autonomy means to allow my desires to run free and to do whatever I want to be. But as we saw, that can be quite destructive in the end. Self-control is actually a gift and it's a good thing. At the heart of it, at the heart of self-control, recognizes that there is something better than my immediate desire. That if I restrict my freedom, or better yet, if I order my freedom to not do this, it's because there's something better I want in the end. That if I restrict my freedom to not be angry or to be bitter, if I don't allow myself to do this particular sinful desire, it's because I have something far greater and far better. And when it comes to godliness, that better thing we want to order our freedom around is the grace of God. It's His mercy in Jesus Christ. So we can live the life that He created us to live and saved us to live. You see, when it comes to the things we face, those immediate sinful desires, or even those desires that might not be sinful but could lead us to sin, it's the grace of God that helps us to be self-controlled because it motivates us to see that God's way of life and the way He orders our freedom is so much better than the promise that drinking or pornography or money or success can bring us in the immediate sense. These things might have an immediate promise and fulfillment, but we know if we indulge in these desires now, they might have a terrible outcome in the end. And so we say no to these desires with self-control so we can pursue something far greater, something that's eternal, something that, that comes from God, His mercy and His grace. The Cretans, people that Titus is living with, we read about back in chapter 1, they are the let loose type people in our world today. Philosophers describe them as evil and liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. No one liked them. Not even the non-Christians of the day. They were hated by all people, had a bad reputation by all kinds of people. You see, they let their desires roam free and no one liked them for it because it led to destructive things in the end. As the church of God, we have a better way that we can show people. We can order our freedom to what is good. Instead of being liars, Paul says to older men, sorry, says to older women, don't slander. Instead, teach what is good. Let the message of grace flow out of your mouth. Instead of being evil brutes, Paul says to older men, be worthy of respect, not through intimidation, not through fear, but rather through being loving and patient, letting the being sound the knowledge of grace. Instead of being lazy gluttons, he says to both older women and men, and presuming to, to younger men and women as well, be sober-minded, be temperate. Do not get drunk on wine. Don't be apathetic when it comes to drinking, because when we do so, we can easily slip into drunkenness, and that can lead us into all kinds of sin that we will regret. Now, we shouldn't think of, from this that only women struggle with slandering and only men struggle with being unloving or impatient. This was the context that Paul was simply speaking to. You might be a woman here tonight who struggles to be loving and patient. You might be a man who struggles with gossip and slander. 
The point is, though, that those who pursue godliness don't indulge the desire to be angry and fly off the handle. When they are confronted with jealousy or the temptation to look at something in the net they shouldn't look at, to go for the bottle, they seek to be self-controlled, knowing that the grace and mercy of God has something better for them rather than this immediate desire in front of them. Now, it's so easy to come away from this feeling very discouraged, right? Because it seems to be a level, a standard that Paul's setting here for godliness. And I don't know about you, but I often don't meet that standard. I often see myself failing to get to that standard. And it can leave us feeling quite discouraged because it's hard to be patient with those who annoy you. It's hard not to, to not be angry with those people who cause us to be angry. And perhaps for anyone here who's experienced immense pain or knows someone who has, it's hard not to turn to the promise of the bottle of alcohol to dull that pain. But we need to remember, not only what is at the beginning of this pursuit of godliness, but what is with us the whole way through to the very end, and that is the grace of God that has appeared to us in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that motivates us. It's the grace of God that when we fail, picks us up back again and says we can live for Jesus and pursue godliness. One of my favorite stories in John's gospel is a woman caught in adultery in John 8. Jesus comes. These people are about to stone this woman for committing adultery, which is right According to Jewish law, she should be stoned. And Jesus says to all those there who are about to stone her, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones and they left. And Jesus stands up and looks at the woman and says, has no one condemned you? She says, no. And he says, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. You see, she not only experiences the grace of God, but in experiencing the grace of God, she is called to live a godly life, to leave her life of sin and to pursue godliness. That's what the grace of God has called us to do. This knowledge of grace enables us to live a far greater life. And when we fail, that is what Jesus is calling on you to do. I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. So with that in mind, I want to challenge us with the question, how are you going in your pursuit of godliness? How are you going in seeking to practice godliness in your life? What are some of the things you need to stop doing? Or perhaps what are some of the things you need to start doing in order to live a godly life. A life where your freedom is not depicted by your desires and what you want, which could be sinful or lead you into sin, but rather your freedom is ordered by the incredible grace of God who has a better life for you than your desires could ever imagine. I think one of the things we often don't think about that question is because we don't take godliness seriously enough in our Western world, in our church in general. We're obsessed with the idea of grace. We love grace, and we love the idea of unconditional love, and we love the fact that Jesus forgives us and we're free from our sin, 
but we don't take seriously godliness. We miss the fact that both go hand in hand. That's what Paul wants to remind us here in Titus, that you know, if you have experienced the grace of God, then you've experienced as well the empowerment to live a godly life. And in fact, to be saved by grace is for the sake of being able to say no to ungodliness, which is what we read about in verse 12 of our passage. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ, which brings salvation to all people, so we can say no to ungodliness. You see, when we forget that, we not only... we're not only unable to live a godly life for ourselves, but also we forget that, that the grace of God enables us to live a life of love towards other people and for the benefit of other people as well. You see, God wants us in our godliness to not only reflect a good order of life for us, but for the life of those around us who are stuck in their sin, who need to be pulled out, who are feeling that they can't escape indulging in their desires. And so twice Paul mentions that they ought to seek to pursue godliness so that the word of God is not maligned or seen as evil. And so it's also seen as attractive, that he as God, as Savior, is seen as attractive and desirable as well. And so verse 6 presents it in a negative way, that older women are to urge younger women towards godliness so that the word is not maligned or presented as evil. If we live a life of grace... We don't have a free pass to sin. That's often the misconception. We often think, great, I can do whatever I want now because I have grace in my life. But we can't live that way because in our world's eyes, that's just giving a free pass to do whatever we want, no matter what we do. And that can have evil consequences because we're not thinking about other people. We're not thinking about justice and love and mercy We're only thinking of ourselves. And when we think of ourselves, it leads to evil things. Instead of worshipping God and allowing grace to order our freedom to what is good. Verse 10 presents in the positive way. That slaves are to obey their masters and be obedient so that the teaching about God our Savior will be attractive, desirable. And it's desirable because it's a vision of life that works in the good times and in the bad times. It works in the times of grief and in times of joy. And to those that are trapped, enslaved by their sinful desires, our godliness shows a better expression of our freedom. And so when people see us, they ought to say, how are you so self-controlled? What enables you, empowers you to do that? And when we fail in our sin, they ought to say to us, not that we're hypocrites, but rather what gives you such hope still? How can you so boldly acknowledge your sin and yet still have hope and pursue godliness? And it's because of the teaching of our God as Savior, who has saved us from our sin to live a life of godliness, ordering our freedom to what is good because of the appearance of His Son, the message of grace. And so this evening, again, I want to ask you, how are you going in your pursuit of godliness? Do you actively strive to be godly because of his grace over your life? And so you can show that grace to other people as you live a godly life. Seeking to do good. Say no to sin. How are you going in that? 
I think in our context, we're not so much like Cretans when it comes to the pursuit of godliness. We're not going crazy when it comes to our desires. That's something that perhaps young people do when they're 18, 19, go on schoolies. But after that, we don't necessarily go crazy and let our desires roam free. That's not our context. But I think for us, we are simply apathetic when it comes to the pursuit of godliness. We don't care enough. We have a she'll be right mentality. We can come to church on Sunday night like tonight and then go to work tomorrow or uni tomorrow, whatever it is tomorrow, and not even think about whether or not we're pursuing a godly life, whether or not we're seeking to honor God with the way we act and behave allowing the message of grace to kind of sink in that far into how we behave on a Monday morning. We don't simply care enough and we think it'll be fine. But the reality is, is that our apathy means that sin can slip in really quickly without us even knowing it. And we can end up gossiping, slandering people, thinking that we're just simply talking about other people and it's all fine. We can have bursts of anger or rage and, and think, that's just who I am. We can have times of jealousy and bitterness, not realizing how destructive those emotions are to relationships. All the while thinking we're fine, we're coasting, we're good. At my old church, where uh, I was a street minister at, the minister there uh, told me a story about one of the people in his congregation a long time ago. And there was a problem with the microphones at the church. And this guy was known for getting very upset when the microphones weren't working properly. And so he would lash out in anger, especially at the sound people, saying, you've got to fix those microphones. He would just blast them to an oblivion. And one day, my minister went up to him and said, hey, mate, what, what's the problem? And he went on to my minister for ages about the microphones and how they weren't working, how he was frustrated and angry about the whole thing and how they should be working fine. And the minute my minister stopped him and said, they're microphones. They can be fixed really quickly. But there's a deeper issue here. One of your anger. You are so angry about these microphones. And that is a problem. And he said, no, it's just me. It's just who I am. I'm just an angry person. Everyone knows that. But then he said to him, the minister said to him, no, the grace of God means that you are called to be godly and you need to deal with your anger. You see, the reason why he, he had thought that way, that he, anger was just who he was, it wasn't a problem, was because he had slipped into apathy and he was not pursuing godliness. And perhaps some of us here tonight need to do business with God. Some of us here perhaps struggle with anger and we haven't realized it. Perhaps you're someone who struggles with bitterness and jealousy and you don't even realize it. And perhaps you are now. And you need to come before God and seek forgiveness and repentance and desire to leave your life of sin so you can pursue a life of godliness ordering your freedom around the grace and the mercy of God. That is the incredible thing about church, is that we can be confronted with our sin, confronted with our problems, and know that we stand in the mercy and the grace of God already. We stand before the one who has made us right, who has washed us clean by the blood of Jesus, so that we can have hope and confess our sin 
knowing that he will forgive us and help us, empower us by his grace to live a holy and good life. A life where our freedom is ordered towards what is good. I'm going to invite the band up now and they're going to lead us in the final set of worship. But as they do that, I'm going to stay at the front here 